All right, so we began a new series last week on the Minor Prophets, and last week I gave an introduction um, to this series, to the Minor Prophets, kind of just what are we looking at here, where are we at in the Bible. If you missed that, you can go listen to it on the website. Um, we're going to take one book a week, so go through this a little bit differently, just cover a whole book. We're not going to read all the verses, but kind of hit some significant uh, portions and consider the, the message of that book as a whole. So today we're going to take our first book, the book of Hosea. Uh, so if you want to turn there, we'll be in Hosea. Um, this week I observed a, a mother and her son uh, walk into a, uh, or get out of the car and begin to walk into a coffee shop. And the mother got out and walked to the door, and then the son didn't want to go in the coffee shop, so he stood by the road um, it was cold and, and raining, and uh, he was very defiant that he did not want to go in this coffee shop. Um, if you are a parent, you've been in these situations countless times. And you have a variety of options before you, right? There are different ways to respond to get your, your child to, to do what you want. Um, you could, I mean, this child was about three, so you could just go and pick him up, drag him, well, kicking and screaming against his will, and... Um, bring him into the store, especially if he's like about to run into the road, that sometimes that might be necessary. Uh, you could uh, offer rewards um, for obedience and say, come, and if you do, I, we will do this. I'll get you a cookie. Or you could warn of threats uh, for disobedience. If you don't come, then this will happen. And, and we do this at times. There's, there's value in, in doing those things. Or, especially as they get older, you can remind them of your love for them. Remind them of your goodness, of your concern for them, and that even in this moment, you want what is good for them. It is not good for them to stand near the busy streets in the rain and the cold by themselves. The coffee shop has cookies. Come inside. This is good for you. I want good for you. Perhaps you get down on their level. You kneel down. You speak to them gently and tenderly. Um, you draw them in with your affection and your, your love. And you lead them to, to obey you, to want to obey you. Well, this is something of what we find God doing in the book of Hosea to his people. Although the picture is even more dramatic, more surprising, uh, more beautiful than that. Because rather than God presenting himself as a parent, drawing a child in with his love. God presents himself as a, as a husband, uh, drawing his wayward wife to himself with his affection. God presents himself as this perfect, loving, pursuing, um, committed husband and his people as his wife. And if you know the book of Hosea, you know that this is not just any wife. This is a an adulteress, this is a harlot, this is, quote, a wife of whoredom, is the exact quote, a consistently, repeatedly unfaithful wife. Um, in fact, when you read the first chapters of Hosea, first three chapters, God tells the prophet Hosea to go and marry a woman that he knows will be unfaithful in order to give this, this dramatic visual image, this teaching point for God's people to understand what their relationship with him is like. And in all of this, 
we get an incredible window into the character of God, into the heart of God for his people. Um, one commentator calls, calls Hosea the second greatest story in the Bible. Apart from the story of Jesus, the true story of Jesus, um, Hosea perhaps gives us the, the deepest insight, the greatest glimpse into the heart of God, God's tender heart for his people. So I'm excited to get into this. There's some amazing stuff. We're not going to be able to get into all of it, uh, but we'll cover some, uh, some great passages here. Um, and there's just amazing comfort in these words. So first, we've got to get a little context. So let's start with the first verse of Hosea, Hosea 1.1. This kind of sets us up uh, where, what's going on here. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Uh, so I said last week, um, at this time, the people of Israel have been split into two groups. You have Israel, what is called Israel now, in the north, uh, which is most of the tribes, and then you have Judah in the south. So these are the two kingdoms of God's people. And this verse here locates Hosea's ministry uh, during the reigns of three kings of Judah in the south and one king of Israel in the north. Um, Hosea is mainly going to speak to Israel in the north, uh, also called Ephraim in, in this book. His message is mainly going to be directed towards them, but it'll also speak to Judah a little bit as well. And when he begins to speak to them, things are going pretty well in Israel. It's a fairly prosperous time. It's a very, fairly peaceful time. Things look pretty good, at least outwardly. But part of what Hosea will be doing is exposing that that outward success or, or blessing, as they might assume, is not actually uh, indicative of what is going on in their hearts. Their hearts are actually far from God. And so part of the role of a prophet is to expose the true state of things is to take God's word and say, here's, be kind of like a, um, to bring a charge, bring an indictment against faithlessness to God and to his covenant. And so much of Hosea's words are going to do that. And so if you were to go through the book of Hosea and, and look at some of these indictments, some of these charges that God through Hosea brings against Israel, uh, you'd find a few things. They, for one, lack true knowledge of God. They don't really know God. Sometimes they pretend to, but they don't really know Him. Uh, they look elsewhere besides God for life and blessing and protection and, and, and goodness. Uh, specifically, they're going to look to the, the stronger, more powerful nations around them of Assyria and Babylon, Egypt, to protect them. They think even protect them from, from God and the results of the, the implications of their faithlessness. Uh, they sin against one another with lies and murder and adultery. They, they break the covenant again and again. Uh, any love and devotion that they do show to God at times, uh, God says, is, is like the dew, is like the mist, is, is just fleeting. It doesn't last. And then even when they are disciplined, they don't turn, they don't learn. Um, they are not helped by the Lord's discipline. You could just continue on this path. These are things that we see throughout the Minor Prophets, but in Hosea, 
they are given a specific name, a specific way to understand them that God labels them, and that, and that is whoredom. Hosea's words, not mine. Whoredom. It is a spiritual adultery against their one true husband. They have not stayed faithful to the one who loves them most dearly. So to get into this, to understand this, to see some of these charges, turn to chapter 2, verse 2. We'll read a few verses here. We're mainly going to be in chapter 2 today. I'm going to read most of chapter 2, but a few verses here up front. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. This is God speaking to the children of Israel, um, and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now, to understand the, the, the huge significance of this analogy, this picture uh, of adultery, uh, we, have to, uh, we, we have to unpack this a little bit and just understand what adultery is. And I understand that this is a, a very sensitive, a very difficult topic for, for many. Um, some of you have been sinned against in, this ways, in these ways. Some of you have perhaps sinned against others in these ways. All of us have, to a degree, uh, witnessed and, 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 and seen the hurt um, that can come from, from sins of this type. And all of us know, to a degree, some of us more than others, that this is an incredibly emotionally charged, heart-wrenching, life-altering topic. And that's kind of the point. Right? God is trying to get our attention arouse some of our deepest emotions, our deepest passions, in order to get us to understand some very profound and weighty things about himself. So we could certainly spend a lot of time talking about our human marriages and, and faithlessness in our marriages and what that looks like, and we could talk about God's heart and comfort for those who have been sinned against or, or sinned and for all of these messy, hard situations that we find ourselves in, we could talk at length about the healing and comfort and peace and restoration that God offers to us in those things. But the main point here and where we will focus is with spiritual adultery. That God is trying to use this this analogy to teach us something about himself and our relationship with him in very vivid, emotionally charged language. So what is God trying to teach us? First of all, he's trying to teach us, he's, he's, this is how God would have us understand his heart towards us. There is a reciprocal kind of love and devotion 
and affection that God wants to have with us. Which is crazy if you think about that. That the creator of the cosmos, the sovereign Lord of all things, wants to have a relationship where there's mutual love and affection and communication and delight and joy with us. You know, God could have merely given us an example of a, a master and a slave, or a boss, an employee, a lord and a peasant, and, and to teach us some things about himself. God could have only given us the, the, this imagery of a father and a, and a son or daughter, and that's one that he does give us, and that is great, and that teaches us things about him. But he, even, he goes even deeper and more intimate and gives us this relationship of a marriage, of a husband and wife, to teach us about our relationship to him. That there is this committed mutuality of love and devotion and communication that he desires from us. Um, in fact, we learn in the New Testament that even our human marriages are the greatest point of them, the ultimate purpose of our marriages is to teach us about God and his relationship with us. Marriage isn't ultimately about us, about me, about you, about your spouse. Marriage is ultimate about seeing and beholding the, the intimate, committed love of God. Secondly, this analogy of spiritual adultery is meant to teach us something of what it is like for those who claim him for those who represent him, to reject him, to turn away from him. We know intuitively that adultery ought not be. Um, even in our society where there's lots of uh, changing in, in what we know is and what people think is right and wrong, especially around sex, this is one thing that still, for the most part, most people say is wrong. Most of the time. Most people still think that. And not wrong like, hey, you went a few miles over the speed limit wrong, but no, this is, ought not be. But God is using this again to open our eyes to a greater evil, a greater ought not be. Our attempts to spread our heart's affections and our allegiance anywhere but to God, or to God partly but to other things as well, to split our devotion. Just as friends and family learning about an act of adultery are stand in shock and anger and frustration. So God is saying that the whole cosmos stands in shock and anger and frustration when God's people ignore him and forsake him and dismiss him and give their hearts to other lovers. Several New Testament passages help us understand what this might look like and how this um, occurs in our lives and our hearts. So Jesus in, in, in Matthew says that no one can serve two masters. You, you can't. Either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, he says, or God and sex, or God and food, or drink, or wealth, or comforts, or pleasures. You cannot serve two things, ultimately. Paul says twice that covetousness is idolatry. So, telling yourself that you have to have something, living 
with your life defined by getting something or living your life around maintaining, keeping, holding on to something that you have, no matter how good that thing is, even family, work, is idolatry, is spiritual adultery. And these words are spoken to to us, to those of us who would claim Christ, those of us who claim to belong to him and, and know him. Are we, is our, is our devotion split? Do we spend our time going after other lovers, looking for bread and water and satisfaction and delight in, in an ultimate sense apart from God? Do we perhaps just give tacit approval to God, uh, use religious activity or religious knowledge as a cover-up for inwardly being cold towards him? Uh, do we use our outward goodness or concern for justice just as a cover-up for inwardly having hearts that are far from God? As Jesus says to the religious leaders in his day, do we honor him with our lips, but really our hearts are far from him? And so God brings these charges through Hosea against Israel. They are playing the whore against him. Now the question is, how will God respond? This is their situation. This is a situation that we understand far too well, that our hearts are prone to wander as we sing about. How will God respond? Well, there are three primary ways that we see God responding to Israel that we're going to walk through, and these will ultimately point us to his heart and his purposes. So first, we see God responding with loving and correcting discipline. Loving and correcting discipline. So look at the next verses in chapter 2, starting at verse 6. It says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it is better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I, God is saying, who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, these good things lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, for idols. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. Uh, later on in, in Isaiah, it'll, it'll, God will talk about removing her, sh her, removing her glory and replacing it with shame. No one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, as the writer of Hebrews says, and we all know personally, discipline is never pleasant to say the least. Discipline is never pleasant in the moment. 
uh, even when it is God's discipline, which is perfect and always out of love, intended for our good. It is never pleasant in the moment, um, but it is good. When the Lord disciplines us, it is good. It is a sign of his mercy because it is intended to, to lead us deeper to, into his heart, to break us from our idols and our other loves, our lesser loves, to lead us to find greater joy and satisfaction in him. And one of the ways that God disciplines us is by keeping us from the things that we want. Keeping us from the things that we think are life-giving, that we think will satisfy us, but will do not, that are less good than him. Um, you can think about the example of an addict, and interacting with an addict. They, they keep going back to this thing, even though they know it's not good for them. And, and on the outside, observing this, we, we see them do this. We know that it's not good for them. We, we see that it's hurting them. It isn't giving them life. And we know that the way out of addiction involves the loss of something that seems so good. It involves losing something that seems life-giving, that seems comforting, that seems satisfying. And only through that loss are our eyes opened and we, we actually see that we were not seeing things correctly. Our, our affections were misguided. This is what God must do for us at times. To wall us in. Keep us from finding. We go after our lovers but find no satisfaction in them. We can take this analogy even further. Um, if someone you love is caught in addiction, don't you have a, a quite complex um, a complex set of emotions towards them. Like on the one hand, you're, you're compassionate. You're angry with them. You're frustrated along with them. But on the other hand, you're angry with, at them. You're frustrated at them, at the decisions they keep making. At one and the same time, you can be compassionate and angry. This is something of what we see in God here. He's angry at his people. He's frustrated with them. He's laying charges into them. He's going to bring some severe consequences for them. And yet, he is operating ultimately from a place of compassion and love. He truly wants what is best for them. And so he disciplines them in order to break them from their sin and draw them to himself. So that's one response of God. But that is not the only way God responds. Just discipline, 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 discipline. Learn the lesson. They don't learn it. A second way God responds to adulterous Israel is by speaking tenderly. And so continuing on in chapter 2, right from where we left off, verse 14. Therefore, behold... I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. 
And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish, uh, God speaks of this future day when he will do these things. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. And then hear these words, I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. This is perhaps one of the most amazing turns in Scripture. In the previous verses, just before this, God had laid out the charges, the indictments against Israel, and he laid out his, his discipline, pretty severe discipline. This is what you get. This is what I'm going to do. And then we get this word, therefore. Now, what would you expect to come after therefore? Like a, a God really pressing in and saying, Okay, we need more severe discipline. We need greater judgments. Or, I'm through. You guys aren't even responding to any of this. We get something entirely different. Therefore, I will allure her. Because of her sin, because of her rebellion, because God has disciplined them and they haven't responded well, God in order to more effectively pull them from their sin and draw them to himself, gets down on their level, speaks tenderly, gently, reminds them of his love for her, speaks of the future of their relationship. I am your husband. You will call me your husband. Uh, later on in, in Hosea, he says, how can I give you up? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Consider God's tactics, God's method of drawing us into his heart and freeing us from our idolatries, our adulteries, our addictions, and the myriad things we give our hearts to. Um, does he command us to love and obey him? Yes, of course. Uh, just like the mom with the son by the road. Does he give promises of reward for obedience? Yes, of course. Does he give warnings, threats of, if you don't obey, this will happen? Yes, and we're going to see that. But is that all he does? Is that even the the heart of what he does, of how he captures our hearts? No. He gets down on our level, speaks gently, tenderly, and reminds us to, of his love, invites us again to see his goodness. I am good. It is better to go with me than your other loves. Ray Ortland says of these verses, amazingly, his response to her indifference is not further judgment, but in this case, the artful strategy of an ardent lover. He intends to allure her, rekindling the romance they enjoyed in their early years together. On a larger scale, this is what God is doing and has done to humanity in general. 
God does not give up on wayward humanity. God does not give up on those who have made themselves his enemies. God does not give up on those who try to love him, but also love other things and are half-hearted in their devotion. God doesn't just let justice have its say, give us what we deserve. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. No, as a sure sign of his compassion, he sends Jesus. And in Jesus, we get the clearest picture of God's goodness, his compassion, his gentleness, of that this is the same God, but we, we see it clearly. Uh, as Jesus interacts and engages with people, we see him gentle and compassionate over and over again. As he speaks, he says things like, my heart is gentle and lowly. And we see it most in his death and resurrection. But to understand that, we have to consider a third way, and a final way that God responds to Israel in Hosea. There is more here. God also responds in retributive judgment, in punishment. Which may surprise us at this point, but it's there, and we have to consider it. So Hosea 5, starting at verse 9. Ephraim shall become a desolation. In the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah, not good things. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Now, there is an aspect of what you might call loving discipline in here. We, we see that God's final purpose is that they may repent and return to him, but it goes beyond that too. That there's clearly an aspect of punishment, of judgment, of God's wrath towards their sin and faithlessness. And this is ultimately going to manifest itself in Israel being attacked by Assyria, the, one, the, the kingdom that they look to, to to save them, God brings and they conquer the Israelites and they bring them to captivity. Uh, Judah to the south will last another 130 years or so, but then they too will be conquered by the Babylonians and they will go into exile. The temple where God had promised to live among his people, this, this great sign that they were God's people, God was among them, where they could go and offer sacrifices, goes, just goes into ruin. The, the great king in the line of David that was promised that they're looking for to save them, doesn't save them. We don't see any of this 
in Hosea or in any of the prophets. You get to the old, end of the Old Testament and this, this glorious picture of a faithful people committed to God in God's loving hands doesn't really emerge. This promise is left out there. This hope is left just out there. But then Jesus comes, of whom it is said, all of the promises of God are yes, are amen in him. And Jesus comes and lives the perfect life. It stays faithful to the covenant as Israel did not, as we did not. He is the better Israel. Jesus also goes into exile. He, he bears, he's bears the judgment for our sin and he's exiled away from his father so that we could be brought in. In Jesus, God satisfies all of the requirements of justice for our sin, of our spiritual adultery. He takes every word of judgment that might be spoken against us, every word of condemnation that might grip us, and he nails it to the cross. And God speaks tenderly and gently and draws us to himself with, with his love, with a the, the ultimate show of his goodness. Not just with discipline, 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 but look at my love for you. And in Jesus, God sends the spirit into our hearts so that like this promise of Hosea says that we will be, we might be a faithful people committed to him in righteousness and justice and mercy and steadfast love. Hosea gives us a glimpse of this. Hosea, this second greatest story in the Bible, gives us a glimpse into God's heart in this, but Jesus is, the, and the gospel is the full picture, is the clearest language for us to see. Uh, Ray Ortland again, um, writes in such wonderful way about this. He says, the gospel sounds the voice of our husband who has proven his love for us and who calls for our undivided love in return. The gospel reveals that as we look out into the universe, ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. There is a God above with love in his eyes for us an infinite joy to offer us. And he has set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. The gospel tells the story of God's pursuing, faithful, wounded, angry, overruling, transforming, triumphant love. And it calls us to answer him with a love which cleanses our lives of all spiritual whoredom. Uh, throughout the book of Hosea, one phrase that is repeated again and again is, I will. God says again and again, I will do this. Like this unconditional promise. I will betroth to you, you to me in faithfulness. I will make a faithful people. And Jesus is the answer and the proclamation of that promise. 
So our call, first of all, is to simply behold Him. Behold the salvation and the goodness of God in Jesus. And then in response, to trust. To trust the sufficiency of that. And then this isn't just a one-time thing. To, as should be abundantly clear from this, to live all of our lives resting in, finding comfort in, delighting in his joy for us. For me personally, I've been thinking about these things and sometimes when I begin to pray, I, my mind, mind gets distracted and I'm elsewhere and I have a hard time getting into prayer. But when I remind myself that God is gentle, pursuing, kind, and lowly, and drawing us in with his love, I am, I am immediately like drawn into prayer. Like, oh, that's who God is. That's who he wants to be to me. I don't, have to, I don't have to do anything, do a little dance and say a little thing just to, to come into his presence. He's ready and willing for me to be in his presence. This is great news. Let's pray.